0: party is over Uh, Canada's interest rates are are rising because of all the borrowing that we've done Uh, the government is now feeling the
1: pinch I'm a husband a father a lawyer a Christian and a proud Canadian I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth not just another biased narrative but real information of substance we need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, would it shock you to learn that our Canadian government has spent almost uh, a trillion dollars over the past 30 years to improve the situation of Indigenous peoples in our country, but that, that but there, by any metric that has not occurred, that, that has not improved the lives of Indigenous people in our country? Would it shock you to learn that large tracts of land in provinces like New Brunswick and British Columbia are about to be ceded to Indigenous uh, peoples under something called UNDRIP? Well, if you're shocked by those things, and I am, then you're probably wondering how we got here, uh, how did this happen, why is this happening, and are there any solutions? Well, uh, today on the program, we have an acclaimed Canadian scholar who is able to answer some of these questions because he's been writing about this for a long time and actually warning us about uh, that that this would happen for many, many years. And his name is Professor Thomas Flanagan. Thanks for being with us today, Professor.
0: Hi, my pleasure. My pleasure. All right.
1: Uh, So before we dive in, I'm going to do a little bit of an uh, introduction of him. Uh, But as we always do, we've got some framing quotations, which uh, are somewhat in in his honor uh, to reflect some of the things that he's done. Uh, The first one is from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, who said, uh, we have no history of colonialism. So we have all the things that many people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten or bother them. That's a rather different narrative than what we're hearing from our current federal government. Next, from Preston Manning, uh, who's also someone that our guest knows very well, who said that there are hundreds of Canadian communities that have given more thought to hiring their rink manager than they have to electing their member of parliament. And finally, from a quotation that uh, I note is uh, in a preface to one of our guest's books, this is from uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses one to six. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house, there I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working away at the wheel, but the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. So who do we have on the show today? Well, Professor Thomas Flanagan, uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Distinguished Fellow, School of Policy, uh, from the University of Calgary. Uh, He's also a Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute. Uh, He's uh, also a Senior Fellow of the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. And I must thank them for uh, connecting us with uh, such a great guest. And in the political realm, uh, he managed Stephen Harper's campaigns for leadership of the Canadian Alliance and the Conservative Party of Canada. And in 2004, uh, the, the Conservative national campaign and in 2012, uh, helped um, Daniel Smith become the Wildrose Alberta uh, leader. Welcome to the show, Professor Flanagan. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna start off with a piece that you wrote uh, a few months ago uh, that's, uh, that was published in the Fraser Institute website entitled Canadian taxpayers not being consulted about massive reparations in first nations, uh, people. And you point out rightly, this reparations is something that's very much in vogue. It seems in the United States and Canada, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that piece and, and sort of why this is happening, because as you rightly point out, Canadians really are not being consulted about this process, which seems to be a very, very, very great importance to to all of us.
0: Yeah. Well, I call it reparations by stealth. Uh, the word reparations is not used very much in Canada, but in fact, uh, we, we have a very expensive program of, of reparations, which is, it's happening through the courts and through the judicial process. It started with uh, compensation for uh, so-called survivors of residential schools, which was uh, the deal was uh, negotiated between Paul Martin's government and um, Phil Fontaine, who at that time was uh, uh, national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and just before Martin's government fell in 2005, they they signed off uh, on the deal. Harper inherited it when he won the next election, and so he decided to carry through with it. Um, I think he thought that this would put an end to uh, uh, to the claims based on the attendance at schools, but in fact it was it was just the beginning. About five billion dollars was given to the uh, uh, to to the survivors. Um, <clears throat> seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but uh, it, it unleashed a uh, an avalanche of other claims for. Um, well, first of all, for other types of schooling, but then it got outside education. So then there are claims for um, people who were patients in the. Indian hospitals, these no longer exist, but we had about 35 of them in right. the past. Then there was a, a claim based on um, water, uh, failure to provide drinkable water. Uh, that's going to cost the country several billion dollars. And then the the, uh, <laughs> the grandfather of all claims for um, foster care. Right. So the, the amounts of money are, are huge and there are still other cases in the pipeline. Um, Of course, you're a lawyer, Leighton. I mean, this is a huge profit center for some law firms is these class actions because the settlement inevitably includes payment of legal fees, which can run run into the millions. Um, So uh, now what we're gonna see in the future is class actions which um, demand not compensation for individuals, which has been the main theme up till now is compensation for individuals who allegedly suffered some harm but it's going to be uh, compensation for aggregations like compensation for bands or for entire tribes or whatever right. the aggregation may be. Right. Some of these are coming along now. Uh, like for example, residential schools are said to have harmed not only the people who attended them, but uh, the communities from which those children were drawn. Right. So now we're going to get class actions to compensate communities. For the harm that they suffered as as collectivities, anyway, uh, all of this has happened without uh, prior authorization from Parliament. It's being fed, particularly by uh, the practice directive of Jody Wilson-Raybould, when she was Minister of Justice, who told the lawyers in the uh, Department of Justice uh, make every possible effort to settle without litigation. You know, in other words, a negotiated settlement.
1: And that, that directive is still in effect, isn't it? Still
0: in effect. Yeah. It's yeah. still there, and they're still doing it. Now, possibly a new government, if we ever get a different party in power, maybe they can rescind that directive, but it's still in effect. Anyway, right. so I've worked with these lawyers from the Department of Justice, and these guys can play hardball when they want to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they will drag.
1: They certainly did over COVID, I can tell you. For, for decades. Yeah.
0: They're, but uh, they've been directed politically uh, not to do their job. Just to seek yeah. a settlement and and so it's it's getting uh, uh crazier and crazier. the amounts of money are huge and growing, and the public don't know you know they see it may see a headline on the news that justice is finally being done, but they don't realize the whole picture that there's a whole this has become an industry right it's d- driven by class action law firms and uh, um, they go out and they round up the clients and you know they go through. Get the case certified and f- knowing that the under this government they'll be able to negotiate a settlement, and the settlement will include uh, uh legal fees right so I call it reparations by stealth
1: you've uh and you've also written uh, in a piece that you uh that you published in April that um these 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 uh these these claims these programs are also significantly driving up federal deficits
0: well of course uh You know, ever since the Liberals were elected in 2015, we haven't had a balanced budget. So that means that any incremental money uh, has to be borrowed. You know, it's not like there's a pot of money sitting there to be distributed to First Nations that uh, uh, bring a class action. Uh, Basically, the government has to borrow the money or print the money and create it. I mean, there's different ways of calculating it, but I. Overall commitment up to this point for these class actions is about sixty billion dollars, and this is all um, has to be new money that we is not is not supported by tax revenue, mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's been borrowed, mm-hmm. or, and and it's not done yet by any means. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these cases uh, have been settled in principle, but it often takes years to find all the members of the class and to compensate them. Right. So. A lot of this money hasn't yet It's promised but it's not yet been paid
1: Right Um, This has actually expanded out into uh, The whole sort of social justice program Though hasn't it There's this massive sort of guilt trip That's being uh, perpetrated against uh, You know the rest of of Canada uh, Which has Finds its expression in things like The whole Kamloops situation And of course uh, you know Truth and Reconciliation Day uh, All this stuff that seems to be almost an importation of uh, race guilt from the United States uh, under, the, under the sort of the, the aegis of, of critical race theory. Yes. Well, my question for you, Professor, is what do you think the end game is? Uh, why, is this, uh, why is this being uh, uh, so, 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 em- so much emphasized by our current liberal government? Is it part of the whole uh, you know, progressive agenda that they seem to be pushing on Canadians?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, it, it is. Um, it's, it's a part of the progressive or woke ideology according to which, uh, all minority groups are oppressed by white males. And this has been working its way now through our public life for probably, you know, almost 50 years. I guess it, uh, started with feminism, uh, environmentalism, um, Minority identity politics, uh, most recently attacks upon biology, assertion of, uh, of, of rights of sexual minorities, uh, transsexuals, and so forth. The true believers are kind of systematically working through all areas of life, looking for victims. In Canada, um, native people are a prime candidate for for victim status. Uh, we don't in, in the United States. It's more African Americans. While we have African Canadians, but proportionally, we, we don't have the numbers that they do in the United States. So in in Canada, it's been more um, Native people on and uh, it, it's, it's hard to talk about it because you're not supposed to use the word Indian anymore. So everybody uses the word Indigenous, but
1: that's um, we still have doing, the Indian. We still have the Indian Act, though, on the books. I know. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the
0: word "Indian" is used in the Constitution of Canada and in legislation and right. so forth. Um, so people all use these uh, the terminology. It's often hard to pin down. They may not even know for sure what they're talking about. Like talking about residential schools. Um, there's a class action coming along to compensate Métis who attended residential schools. Well, they weren't even supposed to go to residential schools. They were, uh, residential schools were only for Indians legally. Some Métis were taken in uh, or brought into the schools on sort of an act of generosity on the part of those who were running them, but uh, they weren't supposed to be there and they certainly were only there because their parents wanted them there, Mm -hmm. Uh, but now they want compensation too. Mm-hmm. So but but a lot of the coverage of it talks about the all the indigenous people who went to residential schools but they were indian residential schools. So it gets broader and broader looking for excuse me looking for more victims to uh to be compensated um and the price tag is getting very very high it, it it's not just that uh it's not just the class actions and the reparations that it, but the um, trudeau government has also uh, pushed the Indian Affairs budget uh, to record highs. I call it Indian Affairs. It's right. the old Indian Affairs Department was divided sure. into two different departments. But the budget of those two departments together is now bigger. It's greater than what we spend on national defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's expanding every year, partly due to payouts for these for these social justice claims, but partly j- just due to enhancement of programming. Right. Um, and bringing in new categories. So now we have programs for Métis people in what used to be Indian affairs. So serving more people, paying out more money, spending more every year. Uh, well, now you have uh, authorities like David Dodge in the financial area say the party is over. Uh, Canada's interest rates are, are rising uh, be- because of all the borrowing that we've done. Uh, the government is now feeling the pinch in having to pay out, what is it? The most recent figure of 40 billion a year or something in interest payments uh, and it'll be rising. Uh, So, you know, nothing goes on forever. These, I think we're reaching some kind of limit uh, of practicality, Right. Uh, but for a long time, it, it seemed to be affordable because you could keep borrowing the money. And so you didn't have the immediate pain, but now the pain is becoming immediate. And I think that's one of the factors that's driving the what's happened in the polls, um, public opinion polls, uh, with the uh, conservatives moving forward, the liberals dropping right. back. It's uh, chickens coming home to roost. The practical effects of programs could be postponed and hidden for a while, but you can't do that forever. They do eventually, does eventually become manifest.
1: Mm-hmm. Part of what this expansion of programming is in response to uh, the court's taking an activist uh, approach to treaty interpretation, though, too, isn't it? Uh, yes. For example, um, there was a time, and you know this very well, better than, than most, when Métis were not considered to have the same uh, necessarily constitutional rights or treaty rights as First Nations peoples, as they're called now. But the courts have now have sort of brought them into the party, haven't they? And so the courts have a very activist role. Uh, and they they seem to be supporting all every, everything that the federal government is saying um how how is uh, how is that unfolding
0: well yeah this is a, again a huge factor um it has to do probably with legal education in canada that the law schools were t- taken over at an early date by adherence of the woke ideology or progressivism and that's what's being taught in the schools and so you get generations of lawyers coming out, believing this stuff, and then they get appointed to the bench as, uh, as judges. Um, and uh, so, yeah, a couple of the landmarks here, uh, reinterpretation of Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 to uh, require uh, that create a duty of consultation and accommodation. Um, it starts with uh, in British Columbia, where there were no treaties uh, most of the province. It actually makes some sense. If you have a potential uh, aboriginal rights claim, which has never been dealt with, uh, is it fair for the government to allow a, a, let's let's say a logging company to come in and cut all the timber, which uh, degrades the value of your of your land? Or maybe it's not your land exactly, but land on which you may have a claim. So I could see the original decision, but then the courts expanded it into Alberta, where treaties already exist. Uh, So now we have the duty of uh, consultation, even where land has been ceded under treaty, um, First Nations are still claiming the right to be consulted on so-called traditional lands, which the concept very poorly defined what is traditional territory Um, could be almost anywhere. So, uh, yeah, this is this is all judge made law. Uh, then you mentioned the Métis, while well, the Daniels decision. Uh, I was originally hired as a historical consultant in Daniels. Uh, I usually, i have always my own worst enemy. They they had a, <laughs> a, an all, all female team from the Department of Justice. So I went up to see them in Edmonton. I walked in, I said, gee, I would never played in a girl's bed before. <laughs> anyway, they, I wrote a report for them, but they, they decided that they didn't want me to testify. And of course they lost the case. So the result is that the Supreme court in its wisdom declared Métis to be Indians, Uh, you know, insane historically. I mean, I had reams of evidence that I'd collected showing how from the beginning Métis were always considered to be different from Indians, but anyway, in their wisdom. They decided they didn't need me as a, as a witness on the case. So, Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's court decisions almost every day. Now there's a new one from British Columbia saying that UNDRIP requires consultation with local Indians before you can have, uh, not not open a mine, but just establish a mining claim. It was already understood that you'd have to have consultation before you opened the mine. But even now, even to get the claim, uh, you're going to have to consult first. So it adds another layer of consultation, time is money. It means that, you know, fewer and fewer claims will ever be filed because it's going to take longer and longer mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Again, all, totally, totally judge made law, uh, in, in this case, in the interpretation of UNDRIP. UNDRIP doesn't state anything like that. So it's judges' views about what UNDRIP
1: implies. In, in the net result, though, it doesn't seem to be improving the station uh, of First Nations peoples in terms of health. Or wealth or education or any other metric. And in fact, you've been warning about this for some time. You published a book in 2008 called First Nation Second Thoughts, uh, where you you started to question uh, some of these policies uh, really before, you know, in a way that was sort of somewhat prescient. And you've written about this recently where you're saying that actually there is another way, there are better ways to improve the station of First Nations peoples and communities in our country, instead of just, you know, writing them government checks. And one of them you talk about is entrepreneurship. You want to talk about that a little bit? One of your solutions to the problem?
0: Yeah. um, Let me just back up and say there, uh, the the one group that we can measure fairly well is First Nations people living on reserve because a a metric has been established. the index, of, it's an index of standard of living on reserve and right. it's been going up uh, gradually as it has for the rest of Canada that you can compute the index for the rest of Canada too. And as we become a wealthier nation, the index is going up, but on reserves, it's not going up any faster than in the rest of the country, even though the spending has has been multiplied. Right. So the, the standard of living seems to be independent of these increases in spending. So when I saw that, I said, well, gee whiz, what's uh, what is there that works? So I started looking at um, first nations that uh, whose standard of living has been increasing disproportionately. Uh, And What do they have in common? And there are some, there's quite a few, there's dozens who've been doing very well. And what they had in common was uh, entrepreneurship participation in the Canadian economy um broadly speaking there's there's two types one is um those who have a uh, a reserve that's close to a metropolitan area and they take advantage of that uh if you're close to vancouver or calgary there are all kinds of economic opportunities there and so there's some good news stories there or the other the other type is natural resource development if you happen to be situated in an oil field or some kind of mining play. So I did a couple of case studies. One is the Fort Mackay and their farsighted chief uh, said, Hey, we've got to start getting in on the action. And it wasn't producing oil for this uh, particular First Nation. It was uh, creating service companies, um, well site maintenance, uh, workforce logic, things like that. And uh, well, their curve just went up like that, it was just incredible. Uh, and you walk around that community today, it looks like a suburb of Edmonton, and uh, not like a typical Indian reserve. The other case study I did was uh, West Bank First Nation in uh, British Columbia on the uh, shores of Okanagan Lake. Huge real estate boom there. So it's very very different from Fort Mackay, different approach to prosperity, but the common denominator is seeing the opportunity and taking advantage of it and doing what needs to be done to marketize the value of their land. They they found a way around Indian Act definition of land rights so that they could um, uh, create long-term leases for developers or for, for home builders. And uh, it's been a huge source of revenue that comes to them through property tax, on development, development fees, or just having people there who uh, want to do business because now they're living there. We, we need to uh, spend more time studying Uh, the success. Uh, Another common factor is these First Nations uh, who have succeeded. uh, They've done it themselves. They didn't go to the government and say, hey, we need special grant to do this. They said, hey, we've got to get in business. Sometimes they had to fight the government to
1: get around (laughs) rules, which were preventing them from getting into business. You and uh, Jack Mintz uh, with uh, Ted Morton wrote a very fascinating book, uh, that I read recently, a moment of truth, how to think of of Alberta's future. And, uh, this book uh, was written some years ago, but it's, uh, it's certainly very relevant at the moment because of what's going on in terms of the, let's call it the, the sovereignty, uh, debate that's going on as between Alberta, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ottawa, which as you know, has been going on for a very long time, but in that book, um, you lay out the case historically um, very well, and in, in terms of this moment of truth, um, do you think that 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 moment of truth has arrived for for the province of Alberta?
0: Well, it's more than a mo- actually the term "moment of truth" was chosen by the publisher. Uh, <laughs> we we didn't uh, uh, come up with that phrase, but he thought the book would sell better if it had this sort of apocalyptic title, "Moment <laughs> of Truth." So you know. Uh, titles, that's the publisher's prerogative. In my view, it's a marketing decision. Um, but we are at a, a a really important, not moment, but a really important stretch of time, right in which the future of Alberta is at stake, because we are, we're not exactly a single industry province, but there's no question that oil and gas is our, by far, our most important industry now. And the federal government is very hostile to it. And some of the federal government would like to shut it down altogether. Others just want to trim it back. Um, and we have to keep resisting that. And Danielle is, uh, has come up, she and advisors come up with something that we hadn't thought of in our book, uh, but it, uh, it the sovereignty act now, originally the sovereignty act in my view was a non-starter. It would, there was no way that you would ever be able to get that through the courts when it came to a test, but the revised version of the sovereignty act just is allows the provincial government to instruct provincial agencies to ignore um, federal legislation, which seems to go outside the constitutional authority of the federal government. Mm -hmm. I think that's at least uh, um, viable as uh, something that you could defend in court. So, yeah, it's it's a tough struggle. There's no question about it.
1: Thank you so much for sharing an hour or so of your time with us and uh, your extensive, expansive knowledge of uh, wisdom and experience in the Canadian political scene. Uh, an historical scene, and uh, we thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to hopefully talking to you again when your new book comes out, and mm-hmm. uh, we wish you much success with that. Thanks for being our very special guest here today on Gray Matter today.
0: Yeah, the tentative title of the new book is uh, it hasn't been typeset yet, but it's it's uh, what was it the uh, Camloops loops myths and the madness of crowds
1: <laughs> well i i i i i'm glad to hear the douglas murray reference and that you're not leaving this title up to the publisher <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we negotiate back and forth but okay. no they were they were willing to accept our suggestions
1: all right thank you very much sir it's been a pleasure uh, okay. having this having this time with you today